Hi guys, we are back with the second run of the podcast. This is the, the second one coming out in the second series. I don't know why I'm calling it a series. They're all following on from one another, but this is the second one of the second shot. This little Commonwealth Games run. And uh, delighted to have an old old foe. He's a friend as well on the line. Um, recently competed again at the British Championships. I think maybe 20 years. I, if he's anything like me, it's 20 years. The last, the fir- very first time he complete, competed at the Senior British Championships, I suspect. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. He's, he's quite tired. He's got a... He's got a new kid, um, so we're expecting interruptions all along the way. Uh, but I am delighted to invite uh, former cadet champion, former junior champion, British senior medalist, Jamie Williams on the on the call. Jamie, how are you doing? All right, mate. How are you doing? Thanks for the lovely introduction. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's at least... 23 years ago or something like that since we competed against each other in the final for the British Cadets. So so um, we, we do go back, we go back a long way. So we competed, we I think, back, 98, yeah. 99, final of the uh, Cadets. But I think, so the reason I wanted to do the British this year, um, so for the British seniors this year, it was invite event, so it was open to everybody, but it was 20 years after the first time I did it. So in right. 2001, which is the British Juniors, and I think you might have won that one. Yeah. Uh, I took a silver medal. It's up in Gateshead. This is this is a throwback. But they invited the finalists to fight in the seniors the following day. So I right. stayed and fought the following day, and it was my first senior. Uh, I national. never knew that because I would have fought that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So 20 years ago, I suspect this would have been your first senior nationals and um it's taken you 20 years to get that first medal. senior medal congratulations yeah, bronze medal yeah thanks very much yeah i've only shamefully i've only competed at maybe four of the trials since 2002 i moved to edinburgh in 2002 to go full time i came from up north of scotland um Used to train in along the likes of Stephanie and Stacey Ingalls and James Miller and whatnot. Um, they would all kind of transfer down here eventually as well. Um, but yeah, injuries, um, massive lack of discipline, too much <laughs> beer got in the way of you know predicted glory. So yeah, I've had that. I've had I think maybe three cracks at it. Never been in the condition to medal, and uh, yeah, this year, this year I had a good one at it. So um, yeah, I, I had some idiot that beat me to, on the way to the, the final, who got his revenge after so it, so long. It's taken yeah. twenty three years. All I remember was from from way way back. Now uh, I know some of the the older judo crowd listen, and they'll remember some of the cadet championships from a long time ago. Yeah. Um, you will know, Jamie. You will have seen him around. He will have had uh, <laughs> a mad, mad haircut. The Scottish flag or SEO uh, shaved yeah. into the back of his hair, walking around without a care in the world. Um, and as a cadet, you were flying. I think uh, you brought a certain level of intimidation and dominated me, I think, in the final. I can't remember a single thing about it, but I know that, I know that I was second on the roster. It was, I think, from what I remember, it was very quick. It was the final 
And I think I'm going to let just caught you with a Makikomi very early on into a hold, <laughs> and that was it, you know? Um, but yeah, the haircut. Um, somebody asked me, somebody asked me a few years ago, I think it was like 2014 when I was kind of turned up at the racket to start training and getting ready for it. And they were like, are you, are you going for trials? And I was, yeah, and they were like, you've got to do your hair. And I'm like, I'm in my 30s, I ain't getting this <laughs> in the back of my head. But then I was like, I lost. And I started wondering, maybe that's the source of my powers. It's the haircut, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, well, God, the haircuts. Oh, they were stupid, stupid days. Um, my hair is fading fast as well now. You know, it's, uh, yeah, hey, you've just done the British Championships. You could have made it. You could have gone out with a bang. The hair could have gone out with a bang as well. I know. <laughs> So yeah. um, we, we're going to talk a little bit about your kind of, I guess, future career, the direction you're moving in, which is performance analysis. But I wanted to ask first a um, couple of things about your like judo career as well. So like what prompted the return? Why? I know why I came back. It was 20 years to the day and I thought that was quite an exciting time. But what prompted you to throw your hat back in at 37, 38? Kind of... My hat's always been hanging loosely, you know, on 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 the in the hat stand or whatever. I've always kind of been there or thereabouts. Um, but I say I've, I, I disappeared for a few years, and like you know, after I moved down here to go full time or something, and then I had a few serious injuries. You know, I've had my ACL done in both legs. Um, I've done my left one twice actually. Um, I've had a few other surgeries and stuff on the knees since then. I've just came out elbow, whatnot. I've had, you know, a fair share. And then I kind of always came back, got injured, disappeared, went hard, came back again, you know. But then over the last few years, you know who hey, the big influence is? Big Gavin Neil. Yep. He's always pushed me, whether it's so that he had a training partner or something when he was trying to qualify for the Commonwealth Games or whatnot, and then just stayed chipping along, you know. And the belief was always there that I could medal. You know, I mean, I look around and the heavyweight landscape in British judo isn't that strong. Yeah, you get one or two players, but when you look at every other country, there's, there's one or two players per club or something that, you know, could, could get into that squad. So yeah. I've always felt I was there or thereabouts. Um, and, uh, yeah, just pushing along consistency in the last couple of years as well is what's kind of bred this kind of resurgence, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's just I like, I enjoy it. I think that's a key part of it. In the last maybe five or six years, I've really come to enjoy my judo again. I've, I've, you know, when I was younger and I was coming back, I always had this kind of thing where I felt unfulfilled or I had a point to prove to like coaches or people I used to train with or something. But then, I don't know, a few years ago, I, I, I shrugged that off my back and I just started turning up to judo, stopped caring so much about how I lost or who I lost to, just got on with it. And I think shaking off that pressure has just kind of let me focus on the most important thing and that's just do my judo, you know? Um, it's, a, it's a hard, hard one. I mean, maybe you as a sports psychologist in the making could <laughs> answer that better for me. But yeah, I mean, also I think I have a strong club. That's what's helped, you know, like Edinburgh judo is getting stronger and stronger all the time. I mean, we actually have some decent heavyweights at the club there itself. And, you know, any night you turn up, there's at least, you know, five to ten decent level club players and a couple of that fight in the British Masters circuit and that yeah, as well, yeah. you know? So, um, yeah. 
Let's, uh, let's it's take... good to be back. Yeah, it's always good to step back on the mat. And I think uh, COVID certainly uh, reminded a lot of people of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's take a, one more step back down memory lane, though. Um, you competed in a wild cadet European Championships. That's at under 18 European Championships. Back in like the year 2000, 2001, something crazy like that. Long, long time ago. But in that category, you had um, a couple of double Olympic medalists, at least one Olympic champion. Um, you you fought Roman Gonchuk, who went on to be a Olympic silver and Olympic bronze Ukrainian. I think Iliadis somewhere there fighting as well. He was in the category as well. But yeah, I never fought Roman. So he's marked down as having a win over me in that competition. Ah, oh, Judo Insiders oh. let me down. Yeah, I know. <laughs> let me down, down as well. It disperts my good name, right? It let <laughs> me down as well. Um, because, yeah, so, so like, that was the European Cadets in 2000 in Romania. And uh, like you said, I had a strong cadet career, you know, kind of smashed my way through the cadets what, three times, then juniors and stuff. So... Getting to the European Cadets was kind of like the highlight um, of where I got. But round one, I came up against the Russian lad. 55 seconds in, snapped my knee, and it was awful. Like, you know, this was my foot was still flat to the floor, and my kneecap was on the mat as well. You know, it was proper, proper buckled. And um, I have, you know, I have very little memories from that day afterwards, but I do remember getting up somehow and the referee was about to start the fight again and um, Trevor James practically ran on the mat he was like nah 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 nah, nah. The, the man can't go on and even the, the Russian kid was like looking at him like ah, the, the fight the fight is definitely over um, all I remember is he stepped across for a big Osoto and I, I held you know he, he, did, he, he had me hooked and I'm trying to stay and then all of a sudden I just my knee just caved in big time um, that sounds yeah, so, that sounds like it's been part of many flashbacks, horrifying oh, dreams. Listen, it gets worse because I'm told that when they were wheeling me out the back of the sports center, that I had to come down the steps. They dropped the bloody trolley bed that I was on, <laughs> and Brian Jacks, uh, uh, Brian Moore, sorry, I'll tell you the story where he is howling, laughing at the paramedics scrambling and panicking to like pick me up again. Um, but yeah, so it wasn't like a couple of years ago. I was looking up judo inside. Um, and, and I, I saw like my name at the bottom there, and uh, I had a look, and it showed you the category that was lined up. And I saw that Roman Gonjic was in the category that day. You know, he's gone on to, well, he fought in the final against Dilius the in 2004 on the Olympics, and uh, yeah, Elias was also in my category that day. So that's a funny thing. Like I say to somebody, I'm like, I didn't see no 12 year old. In the category that day, you know, and, and like I, I'm pretty confident I can beat most 12 year olds I've ever met, you know. But yeah, so they went on to do quite well in the Olympics, and uh, I mean, I suppose that's another it's, it's a nice comfort looking back. And I'm like, well, it's nice to have been in such esteemed company, it's a pretty strong category when you've got the next two, the next Olympics, you've got the future, like you know, finalists. And then I think Roman went on to get bronze in 2008 as well, yeah. Um, and Ilias, I regard as pretty much one of my the all-time greats, like my favourite style of fighter, you know? So, yeah. Um, I wish I got his autograph back then. <laughs> um, 
so I'm sure everyone or both of the people listening are raring, raring to go. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tantalise them one last little bit. I want to say congratulations. You recently um, uh, had a baby girl, and I think yeah. you had quite an exciting time when she uh, decided it was time to to, to come out. It was the hardest knee razzle of my life. I delivered her. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I delivered her, mate. So, yeah. Um, you actually was... you delivered her in the hospital or at home? or In, in the bedroom floor, upstairs. Yeah, <laughs> so, we, listen, we've done all the antenatal classes. Oh, labour can be 12. Hours can be longer. Don't expect anything, you know, crazy. And then the phone. So, I think I was watching the Olympics, actually two in the morning and you know I get a message from the missus upstairs and she's like I've just been sick and we're up we're like two days over the due date so I'm like okay here we go you know we've got everything organized thanks to her because uh, I'm not organized at all so I was like right so I kind of thought I'll get my head down for a few hours then because it's going to be a long day She's tossing and turning, jumping out of the bed. She's uncomfortable it's a proper labor so then eventually we get to about just before 6 a.m and she phoned the hospital and she's like, I'm not great. This seems like I'm further along. And they're like, oh, no, it sounds like you've, you're on the way, but you haven't broken your water. <laughs> that. So I think maybe fast forward 10, 15 minutes at 6 a.m., you know, and she just turns to me, she's like, phone me, something, something, I'm doing something's wrong. So I was like, you know, in panic spaces, phone the ambulance. And the woman, she was amazing, but she was like, right, listen, Get your wife comfortable on the floor, on the bed. Get some towels because you're going to deliver the baby. And I was like, <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> I'm not. I promise you I'm not. Was... I'm not delivering the baby. At <laughs> like any moment, I thought the paramedics were going to bust in the door and like shove me out of the way. You know, I've seen movies. I've watched ER. I've watched like, you know, all the house and stuff. Like, I, I, I know how this goes. Now, nah, sure enough, baby delivered. Came within four minutes. David wow. Lewis, three of the half a days, and uh, yeah, she's been a delight ever since. So, oh man, how how are mum and baby? They good? Yeah, they're good, mate. Yeah, they're good. Um, just uh, yeah, it's uh, interestingly, she's it's the same as me and my brothers and that. She's got the same um, hearing issues, so she's deaf as well. Um, but uh, yeah, other than that, it, it's it's been a joy. It's uh, it's been good fun so far, and. Um, I was lucky I had a good almost 12 weeks off work just with the way my work rotation goes. So, yeah, yeah I, I pulled a few strings and a few sickies along the line. But, yeah, I managed to get a nice three months almost of just father-daughter time, you know. Amazing. Well, many congratulations, mate. Thank um, you. And I, I hate to be rude, but I am finally going to get into the podcast now just after you've had that heartwarming story. Um, <laughs> you have recently like shifted your career direction you've you've done a master's in sports science you've yeah, uh, yeah. specializing <laughs> in performance analysis um first of all like what is performance analysis so it's kind of you know we've all done a bit of it i think in judo you know like we've all watched tapes of our own performances as kids or as athletes now we've all looked at like youtube clips of opponents fighting um, stuff like that, you know, but it's basically the role of a performance analyst is to help coaches, athletes, even support staff make better decisions in the pursuit of performance using information from, and it doesn't have to be video analysis, which is kind of the core of what I do. It can be 
data from, you know, physiological measures or whatever else. Um, but yeah, this information can be used with, you're working with athletes to help them develop their techniques or try and better understand the errors that they made in their recent performances. It can be used to help the coaches monitor who's a natural leader in your squad or who is taking the warm-up seriously. So, for example, I was working with one junior squad in the rugby um, set-up, um, Scottish rugby, and uh, the coaches asked me to set up the cameras 15 minutes before they arrived because they just wanted to see what the players acted like when they arrived. Because it was a young squad, they're in development. This was like under 20s or something. And they just wanted to see who's the natural leader in the squad. Who's the one that's going to be like, right, lads, we need to get warmed up. Who's the future captain, maybe? You know, they just wanted to see, just an attitude thing, you know? Um, a little thing that that can be used, again, just to help make better decisions, you know? Um, and it can be even used by your governing bodies to make the best selection choices ahead of major tournaments, you know, because sometimes you can have athletes that are banging out goals, but then you have athletes that are banging out performances in training and who's the more consistent or who's the who's the better money in the bank when it comes to entering these athletes in tournaments, you know, so it's, it can be used in a great deal of ways. Um, but, you know, my I've done a little bit of work in judo, um, but most of my work is in predominantly in rugby. And it's it's in a lot of it is working with video. So I do a lot of filming um, rugby matches, filming rugby training sessions, and um, just yeah, we 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 film it, record it, which is just creating a timeline of all the footage, all the events in the footage, different training drills or whatever, and then we we analyse that and we'll just feed that back to the players and to the coaches. And depending on how the players are, that that feedback gets delivered and. Great deal of different ways, um, but yeah, oh, it's, it's interesting. So I, I am like, yeah, familiar with like watching tape, as you say. I'm sure as all judo players do, and it, it's much more accessible now with YouTube and with the IJF's footage. But like, yeah. we all have watched um, certainly tape of ourselves, tape of opponents. Uh, I think you talk about coding it. Is is it? Is it simple to code a judo match? Like, uh, for me, like, one of the things about judo is it's it's chaos. And there are patterns there. I'm assuming you are looking for those patterns and what they look like in terms of... And again, I know you're more experienced in rugby, but in terms of attacks, in terms of uh, gripping, I guess? Footwork, maybe? Yeah, yeah. I think, personally, gripping is the key part. And it's also the, the, probably the most difficult part to understand. Um, this is, I mean, like my actual my master's dissertation was um, working with Judo Scotland and uh, looking at attack rates, for example. Um, over, like, I think, you know, the, the 2017-2018 British trials. And, um, yeah, there's so much to consider that when you're coding a match... So when I say coding, that's, like, the term that we use in the software that we use. But you can do this with, like, pen and paper, just how many times somebody attacked and then when you're watching the video backwards, you can, how many times did they attack with like a left throw or a right throw or actually wiser versus something else, you know? Um, how many times or how, how much time did they spend on the ground, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, like it's, chaos is the best way to describe it, especially to somebody that isn't familiar with judo, you know? Um, but uh, it's kind of trying to, uh, like for me, I'm quite interested at the moment of kind of going through 
say, for example, the British trials and looking at the 60s, 66s, all the way up to 100s, and looking at the, the, the ratio of like activity to like rest, so like each exchange between Hajimi and Mate would be one exchange. Yeah. And that usually is like 20 or 30 seconds. And then you maybe stop for 10 seconds. Unless you're like me and I work on our fight last month where like I was my belt was off every single <laughs> mate again, like dragging it out. Um but yeah, it's like you know, you start looking at this and you start looking at the tempo. So like 60s up to 73s, the tempo is pretty crazy. There's attacks flying in left and right you know, at a much higher rate than you would get in the heavyweights, you know? And then, like, looking at fight duration and then how much attacks per minute of contest are positive attacks and or how many are just twitches, you know? And I would say, you know, I'd say heavyweights probably use a lot more twitches than the lighter weights because the heavyweights don't attack as much. They don't have the energy to attack as much, but they don't want to get penalised, you know? So it's that kind of, it's almost time to fool the referee, isn't it? But the referees are good these days. They, they, they know the game's up. Um, but like, you know, especially in gripping, there has been like research out there that like the most effective gripping pattern would be Ayotsu, which is the traditional collar versus collar yeah. and sleeve grip, yeah? But when you're analysing fights, because everybody does this, it's the traditional way. And then you will find that people, when they're gripping, athletes will adopt a completely different grip pattern or, like, you know, the kumikata will be formed in such a way to eventually get the grip that they want, mm-hmm. you know? Because nobody's going to let you just walk up and grab that to just know Ayotsu grip. Yeah. So you'll find it's back and forth, back and forth, and then... You know, after a few exchanges. So, like, the, within the exchange from Hajime and Mate, there's several exchanges that are just on grips. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's chaos is the best way to describe it, you know. So then, you know, if, for the kind of, you know, for the people that are really tuned in, they might want to look at how that gripping pattern forms to eventually get where they want to be. You know, um, whereas like, you know, you're younger athletes and stuff. Like me, I remember when I was younger, I was just looking at what foot my opponent stepped forward with. Because there was so many, as a junior, like, you know, mini mom competitions, I was catching so many people off the grip at the start of the fight just because I knew they stepped forward with the right hand. So I came flying in with the fastest so-so a kid I'd ever saw, you know. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I mean, even like in terms of gripping again, I'd be interested in looking at athletes who have, who exhibit clear strength endurance. Mm-hmm. So if somebody has weak strength endurance, then you could start analysing that and looking at building a tactic where for the first two minutes of the fight, you engage and you just put, you know, put them through torture. Get them to the point that he's so fatigued that by the end of that fight, when you start to throw in your serious attacks, he's going to be more susceptible to that because the the, the grip strength is fading, you know. And um, but I mean, I think well, that's kind of what happened to me and you. I was fading by the end of what did we go to seven minutes, you know, or something like that. Like, I it was, was it was a heavy it was a heavyweight seven minutes. So the, the first <laughs> three or four minutes didn't nothing much happened. Oh, um, yeah. I think but, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you talk about that though, because one of the, when I moved to Scotland, one of the the when I moved to Scotland, one of the big things that 
I added to my judo was like patterns of how to put my hands on because again before that as a junior or younger athlete I just fought for my grip like for in a in a really chaotic manner and mm-hmm. um the kind of yeah the strategy behind it like you can put your hands on this way this is how you can win a sleeve rather than yeah. just fighting as hard as you can was like a revelation for me and added a lot of structure to my mm-hmm. judo um so again that's something i, I would look that. out for yeah yeah i can remember i can remember when you came up to 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 edinburgh and um in no time at all i found you murder to do randori with like i've seen my hands being crossed in front of me and i'm like just wondering what the hell i'm doing but you were so strong as well but yeah i can remember oh, thank you very much. just killing me and i hated it yeah yeah no definitely and i had that same revelation <laughs> Only just in the last few years, because I was the same. I wasn't so much that I fought for grips. I was always very happy with whatever grip I got. You know? hold, hold on one second, Jamie. I'm I'm feeling uh, massively embarrassed about my thank you very much there. Like I don't <laughs> I don't put the visual out there. People can't see that I'm grinning and basically <laughs> slightly being a dickhead. So um, this is my podcast. I can be as as big a knob as I want to be. <laughs> I wasn't immensely strong. Jamie's been very um, kind to me. But uh, yeah, sorry, carry on. Yeah, like, and you've made those cha- same changes. I wasn't trying to yeah. make it. You've made the same changes. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 um, it, I had that sort of, I was always happy with whatever grip I got and just took it, you know. And so if somebody had a, you know, if I was being outgunned, I was still like an idiot trying to throw you. And, and a bit, you know, in the end, just get turned over, you know. Um, but I always had this kind of very gung-ho style, no structure. You know, I didn't think about it. There was no, no method think, to my madness. I think that's there's an attitude of that in judo, isn't there? Whereas, just go out and try and throw somebody. And yeah, yeah. yeah I think you see less of that the more you get an understanding of judo and you move up the... Yeah, levels yeah. as it were, where you you understand that you have to get your hands on, you have to be able to create opportunities to throw. It's not simply a case of, yeah, as you get better, just being gung ho. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, um, but yeah, definitely. I mean, in the last few years, I've changed it so much. I'm now a left-handed fighter instead of right. You know, um, and I think that initially came because I hurt my knee, and so when I started fighting again afterwards, I kind of changed my stance a little bit. But now I can throw on left and right. But yeah, I fight left just because that, you know, people hate fighting left-handed fighters. I know I do, yeah. you know. So that's the, I just stick to that. That's how much I changed up my fighting style. Um, but uh, yeah, it took me a while before I got a sense of having the grip. And then even Kazushi, you know, like using that. Just, I don't know, it's funny. I, I don't know how I got away with it for so long, having no method to my madness but yeah it worked it up to a certain stage um, when, but yeah i mean so no i was gonna say when when we're talking performance analysis the other thing i automatically think and you you can correct me now is uh moneyball uh yeah. you know the, the brad pitt movie where they're they're putting yeah. like data stats to baseball and i'll be honest i watched that movie without a real clue as to what was going on and i tried to come back away and apply it to judo and uh yeah. again you've you've touched on the technical side you've touched on things like attack rates is there space to put stats to judo or because of the chaos because of there's so many variables because 
um, every attack is different. There's so many different body types. Is it hard to kind of really know what those stats are, what the, the important stats are? I think it's such a short window of time, isn't it, Judo? Four minutes and then however far you get the contest. And, you know... It's, it's it's not like a league format with like rugby or football where you generally know who your opponents are weeks and months down the line. So it's, it's a kind of the predictive side of things is a, a different element altogether. I think you're right. There's so many variables. And I think the, the best way I've seen performance analysis being applied to judo would be in a technical sense. You know, look at how your opponents are catching people with the same techniques or looking at their transition to knee wiser. Like, are they really putting in a throwing attack or is that just a precursor to get you to the ground, you know? Um, but then I think, like, it wasn't using video, but, like, one of the one of the best kind of examples I can give is a personal one where a couple of years ago, um, Reese Calder came up to me in training and he was like, why do you always try and throw big? You know, we're doing crash mat work. And I can, I, I've got hips, you know, I mean, I've got hips and days. I can do a big mino goshi, yeah? But I always send people high before I, you know, I, I go big. It's always like that sort of champagne style of throw, isn't it? <laughs> but he's like, you're fighting big, heavy guys and you're fighting guys that are stronger than you that know that you're coming in with an ogoshi. They know you're going to come in with the hips. So they're going to block that. So he's going to be like, why are you doing all this when all you need to do is take them down? Like, you're just going to throw them on the back anyway. So he was kind of like trying to encourage me to look at maybe putting less energy, less effort into a big throw and just bringing it down. So, you know, kind of taking it almost like a kind of Koshi style when I came in with it. You know, instead of going up, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wrapping around and going down. So, yeah, I looked at, you know, I took that and he thought, how did it go? I'm still throwing people. I'm still throwing people big, but it's just there's not that much energy expenditure trying to launch something high. That's, I mean, I mean, I'm pretty small for a heavyweight anyway, you know. And height, I'm only six two. You get some of these guys that are six four, six five. And it's let, difficult. Let's be honest. He's saying he's six two. I've I've stood next to this guy. I mean, he's maybe five eleven <laughs> at the moment. I'm six two wide. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot, Jamie. Sorry, I'm going to put you on the spot because I've just had an idea and I apologise because we did not talk about this at all. So, obviously, we've had a new set of rules from the IGF. Yeah. And we we ha- the, the rule change that I wanted to see, yeah. getting rid of golden score, um, hasn't come about. Now, it, it makes me wonder if the IGF are using performance and analysis and the reason where i'm getting to is that um sports that have used golden score previously so football famously like golden goal um bjj had a a submission only events what they those sports i mean there's there's going to be others but they're the two that literally just jumped to my mind that I've, i've read recently they scrapped the idea of golden goal they scrapped the idea of uh yeah or submission on events became less popular because what actually happened was um, teams set out more defensively, players set out more defensively because the consequence of a mistake became so fatal. Yeah. Um, Now, we've been talking about all this and I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before. For me, the obvious answer in judo is introduce a small score, yeah? Yeah. 
because that makes the consequence of your actions less costly, which frees you up to make more attacks. And by having... So I think think one of the changes to mitigate that has been, you know, the like like um, the turnover score. Mm. So they've removed that now, which I think is going to encourage people to attack with, like, you, you know, bigger okay, techniques yeah, yeah. or stronger attacks. So I think that's one way of mitigating it because there'll be some people there who they don't want to put in, like, a big matter for the fear of somebody blocking it and simply just, block, you know, shifting their hips and dragging you across onto your side. I hate that. To me, that's cheap judo. Yeah, and I, I think, I think the so rule set rewards you being fit. Like, be, yeah. having an engine, not be being able to throw big, not being able to deliver massive power. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of these athletes yeah, are yeah, phenomenal yeah. and can throw in the first 10, 30 minutes, yeah. you know. But the rule set rewards you being able to drag it into goal yeah. score. Yeah. Um, Which I, I have never, like, I, I've lost a good few fights on that, kind of, in that fashion, where I just never had the tactical, you know, prowess to, to, to do that. You know, you tell me, take it hard for the first two minutes, then turn it up. I still go out there turning it up as soon as the referee says to do it. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I, I, you know, so I, I've seen myself, I feel cheated. By you know, there's, there's a fighter out there that beat me, I think, three times by disqualification. Just walked me off the mat, walked me off the mat, and took it to the distance. And I'm just, you know, I'm like, it's nobody wants to see that. First and foremost, it doesn't make for you know sexy judo to watch on TV. Um, bring back hand tie. That's what I say. I oh, miss the flags. And that, if you want, if you want TV judo, if you want something that's more exciting, hand tie is. is you know, you don't know until those flags go. Oh, it's you know? such a visual thing. There's so much tension there. If I don't, yeah. I, in fact, me me bringing this up, I don't think there was a question in there. But I, it is a shout out to, to the IGF. Yeah, there is space to tweak the rules. There's still space to tweak the rules. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm only going to say this: if you haven't got performance analysis, I know someone who probably would quite <laughs> enjoy working in judo at some point. Um, yeah. Has a little bit of experience of it. <laughs> I. <laughs> Where where do you see like what's the space do you see like uh performance analysis being used in judo? So I, I assume I know Chris Barry is employed by the BJA. Um yeah. what's the space for performance analysis in judo? What where do you see the directions it could go? I think uh at the moment in terms of budget, I don't know how other con- countries apply it. I think it's one of those things where it supplements a coaching program, you know where the most benefit you could have is if you're already involved in judo, you know, in terms of finances and stuff, no club's going to have the finances for an individual analyst. You know, some of the government bodies aren't going to have that either. So I think I know Chris does a bit of coaching and working with players individually as well. So that's kind of bringing an asset to the role, you know. Um, But it's, uh, you know, it depends on what level you're at and what level you aspire to. But, I mean, there's softwares out there you can use for free if you want to. Um, some of them do trials as well. Where you can get like, a couple of months free if you want to sample it and work it. Um, the resources can be, you know, like I said, you can use pen and paper. It doesn't have to sound expensive. It doesn't have to sound complicated. And if anybody listening to this actually wants to kind of delve deeper into it, on British Judo's um, YouTube page, there is a 
beginner's introduction to performance analysis that was hosted by Chris Barry um, just last year. And uh, that, went, that was kind of like a CPD opportunity for coaches and whatnot. And um, that was run over two sessions. And there was a lot of information and a lot of good contributions where coaches from all over at different levels and stuff spoke about how they would apply it and, you know, what benefits they saw. Because sometimes, you know, you can hear somebody like me talking about it and it sounds really technical. And can they almost, uh, you know, can be almost intimidating. But then you have simple applications that are probably more effective, you know. Um, I think for me, some of the interesting areas that it can be applied in judo would be return to play. Mm-hmm. So coming back from injury. Um, and the idea of this came from, like, listening to a podcast a few years ago. Um, and it was talking about rugby coaches and strength conditioning coaches who I think a kid came to them. He was in the academy and he was like, talking about how he's 20 and he thinks he's good enough for the first team so then they they can he create a model of his numbers strength and conditioning and when he's playing on the pitch and they showed him his position in the first team and just what the gap was between his performance and that performance and they were like that's where you need to be to get into the team you're not far off it. This is where you need to raise your numbers, you know? So I think, you know, applying that to judo, it's like, yeah, we, we looked at a thing with judo Scotland from a master's where we were kind of looking at this attack rate. And, yeah, as I said, different weight categories will have a kind of a different type of attack rate, you know? Like I said, the lighter weights will attack more frequently than the heavy weights. Um, but I think if you can match that to doing analysis and randori sessions when somebody's coming back from competition. Because you know yourself, you've had the say you've had the big injury the ACL. And you can be pumping out strong gym numbers and you can be doing your kind of everything else like you know mobility work and whatnot. But until you test yourself in randori and in competition, you just do not know. And even after your first few randori, you still feel a bit sketchy. So I think if you can sit there with an athlete and show him the numbers in Randori and be like, look, prior to your injury, you were hitting these numbers and you're almost there again. You're ready for competition. It could probably be used as an aid to help inform the physios and whatnot and the coaches that he is ready for, you know, return to action. So, you know, you can, but then Randori is always different to competition, but you can simulate that as much as possible, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's kind of one way I've always thought it could be applied. No. Um, but it also can be applied to kind of show people this is this is what we need to be in order. You know, say you're, tra- tra- you're training towards like the trials at the end of the year. You start increasing the intensity and training and stuff like that. But then you want to, you know, do scenarios where like you've got one minute of contest. This is how much you need to hit. And then that shows you the intensity that you need. So you can prescribe the intensity for a minute in training, you know. Yeah. Um, and you could, yeah, you could do it per weight, you know. Um, you could do it per, like, you know, the women's weights as well. And the men's weights, can, you can split it up a good bit, you know. Um, but, yeah, it can also be used to determine, you know, say, I'd say for example, your key throw is Dropsy and Nagy and Mindo Gossi. But then we start looking at all the throws in the last couple of trials. And then you start to find that, you know, only 10% of the time is Ogossi scoring. Maybe fifteen percent of the time we drop Cianagi scoring, but also is out there fifty percent of the time, and we're looking at ourselves like, why are we not doing Osoto? 
you know? Okay, so you're so that coaching thing. and and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to, yeah. So again, you know, like, like you know, I, I, I've I've been guilty of this myself when I was yeah. younger, where you asked me to do Uchi Komets, and yeah, like you know, Ogosi or Uchi Mata would be my key throw, but. I'm just going to do a really lazy Koshiguruma Uchi Comet because it's easier to do. It's like, you know, but then you can start dialing down into athletes saying, like, why are you drilling certain throws that you know you can do when the data is showing us that it's more optimal to be specializing in this type of technique? You know, yeah. what what transitions in the Rasa and competition are more successful? You know, at certain weights, why are you trying to do a juji roll on somebody that weighs 150 kilograms when really you should just be going straight in for a hard Raki Kitani, you know? It's like, it, it can be channel people towards what's the more efficient techniques, the low-hanging fruit. There's big value in the low-hanging fruit, but some people just go for the more complicated techniques or they stick to the techniques that they've been able to do all their career, you know? Yeah. So breaking it, bringing it, bringing it back down again, I guess a little bit, if, uh, again, the two, three people who are listening to this, <laughs> I said, I've got the, the tiny, on. tiny, <laughs> yeah, yeah, tiny violin in the background. If my mom's listening and she wants to go away, she's a, she's a blue belt. She's a green belt. You know, <laughs> mom's a black belt. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> yeah, a long time ago, a long time ago. But she, she got a black belt in like a year. Um, because you got to think, she had four kids who were like every week, one of us would be doing theory. And I think we used to train in the Renes like a Monday, Wednesday and Friday for three hours. And because my <laughs> brothers were so young, I go on. So she just absorbed just all this judo knowledge. Amazing. And she actually could scrap. So yeah, she got her black belt through the graders. And then she also, it runs in the family. She snapped her ACL as well. Never did it again. You're, yeah. su- you're such a fragile family. Fragile family, <laughs> the Williams is. <laughs> if, if someone is listening at home, like uh, they're green belt, they're blue belt, they're looking to progress. And yeah, they're up for watching judo. How... Have you have you got any tips that they could take away? Like simple things that they could take away. What what could they be doing? What should they be looking for? If you're at that level and you've never even you've never even competed that much, I would start watching competition footage. Get familiar, you know, even from a psychological perspective, get familiar with how athletes walk out and carry themselves and conduct themselves in between the contest activity you know so how they tidy that things that make you feel more at ease and more confident in the matter that's my first thing you know i'm a big fan of like visualization and stuff anyway and um, I, I believe that the video can be used to support you know more than just what happens on the match like it, it can you know it can influence what you do mentally as well you know um oh I, yeah but, i think that that's the space there for a whole podcast but i think yeah. In terms of imagery, in terms of visualization, like using video as a as a tool to aid it, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. But we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll I mean, come I, back to that. That's for that's that's well, like, done. Cause like my my undergrad is psychology, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's especially if it comes to techniques and you're doing your theory and your gradings, you know, there's plenty of videos out there. Study them. And then start looking at, you know, how some of the other nations are doing the techniques if you want to prosper a little bit. There's, we live in an age now where there's so much content available online that is unreal, you know. Um, even Instagram's a really good one. You just type in the technique and you'll see 
101 variations of it, you know, and people with different entries and stuff like that. But, um, I mean, at that level, if you're looking to advance, the best thing to do is find out who your opponents are and look them up on Facebook because people can't help posting videos of their own fights <laughs> online. So coming into I the British, that. mate, I did that. I did that going out to the British, you know. And, yeah, just checking out footage, you know. Do what I do. Upload it anonymously and in a private link so that only <laughs> you can see it. Listen, top tip, top tip. I love that. I, I, some of the stuff you've said there's thrown up another question. Why have you ended up performance analysis? Now, I ask that because I know why I ended up in sports psychology. Um, reason being that I felt that that was where the holes were, the major holes were in my game. Now, obviously, yeah. I could have my game. I could have easily ended up in S and C. I could have ended up in. Like as a, as a coach, I do coach, you know, like massive tactical holes, massive technical holes. There were a lot yeah. of holes in my game, basically. I ended <laughs> up in sports psychology because I felt they were the, the, the biggest holes. Why performance analysis? Is it something similar? Is it, or is it another reason? It's a, you know, I never had a, a set path, but I mean, in those kind of lost years where, you know, I never really transitioned to a senior career. Um, alongside university. So when I came down to go full-time in Edinburgh in 2002, um, I was also studying um, psychology um, at Queen Margaret University College. I say the word studying very loosely. <laughs> like, I had a reputation for cancelling classes. Like, I, you know, I wouldn't let people leave the union. I'd say, oh, no, 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 class is cancelled tomorrow. And I'd be the only one that turned up in the morning like an absolute knob. <laughs> um, yeah, I, they were glad to see the back of it. Uh, but, yeah, so I did that. Ended up, you know, kind of failed... I didn't graduate with honours in the long run, but I used to kind of go through a spell of studying hard for six months or so, go back to judo when I wasn't injured, and then forget studying, just, um, you know, concentrating on one thing or the other. It was never like a dual career thing. So I ended up, I felt, when I finished it, I felt kind of unfulfilled. I eventually finished 2009, my studies. Um, I kind of felt unfulfilled felt like I couldn't really do much with this degree that had no honours attached to it, you know. Um, so I kind of just, around, you know, around that time as well, I was, I'd was i been working as a bouncer for, you know, I think now, I've, I've finished now, but I've been working, I've done about 15 years on the door. And judo helps a lot with that, by the way, right? But I, want, 15, I want to know what your attack rate was as a bouncer. Right. <laughs> I'm the soundest bouncer you'll meet me, honestly. <laughs> yeah, listen, you walk around Edinburgh, there's none of, I don't have a bad name. Um, yeah, yeah, I was always the talker. And I think judo gives you that quiet confidence. Also, being 150 kilos gives you a quiet kind of confidence against people. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, um, I'd done that for years and I just felt, I'd done the doors for too long to the point that I felt like I had to go back to university and do something closer to what I wanted to do. And it's funny enough, actually, I had a, when I had my surgery in 2000, when I snapped my ACL, the surgeon that I had, um, Nikolai Mifuli, he's amazing. You know, he's world-renowned, pioneered so many techniques and different research papers for miles on this guy. He wrote me a letter a few months after I kind of returned to judo and whatnot. I'd let him know how I was getting on, you know. And uh, he was like, delighted that you're getting on. You're coming to the age, you're going to university. 
And he kind of started saying, I encourage you to look at sports science as a future career. And this is back in 2000 when it was just a baby. The whole thing about sports science was just a baby. Oh, wow. And I never listened. In 2015, I decided I'm going to listen. I'm going to go back to university. So I ended up, I went to Open University, transferred what I had into honours, and then um, I went to Napier in, in Edinburgh to study sports performance enhancement. So it's a kind of, it's a bit more specialised than, say, a sports and exercise science degree, but um, it kind of covers all sorts of things. And one of the modules that was running just had people coming in from all different types of sports science avenues. So we had people that were strength and conditioning coaches at like Hibernian Football Club. We had a girl that came in, she was a rugby um, referee with um, at the time, uh, Rugby Sevens. And um, we had other people. And then we had a guy come in, um, a guy called uh, Dr. David Stevenson, who was head of performance analysis at Rangers Football Club. So that, that's my team, by the way. So I sat up and listened. And um, it was interesting because he spoke about the softwares and the stuff that he did and how it was applied and a kind of typical day-to-day thing, covering training sessions, whatnot. But then he was like, this can also be done with pen and paper. And it kind of threw me back to when I was younger, watching videos of me fighting with my old man and trying to figure out who attacks on what side, who steps forward on what side, you know, and kind of getting to know my opponents. And I was like, this is this is not new to me that I kind of have always been doing this. You know, I've always kind of had a, a, a small profile or some notes maybe on what my opponents are like. So it kind of piqued my interest a little bit. And that was maybe, oh, what are we in now? This was 2000 and, yeah, this was like 2020. 2019, sorry. And so that was the early days. And I kind of started looking around, but there wasn't much kind of course modules out there. Or there wasn't in Scotland anyway, there isn't any courses, but in England there's a lot of kind of performance analysis courses popping up, like degree level and um, master's level. But um I wanted to focus in Scotland because you can get your higher education for free up here. Um, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, so I kind of looked around and then I was actually, it's a, it's a small world because you, you mentioned Chris Barry there. And um, I actually trained with Chris Barry as a kid back up in the north of Scotland. And so, you know, years and years later, he's now working as a performance analyst. But I actually managed through my course, I, I, I gained an internship with Scottish rugby as a performance analyst. And it's the same internship that Chris Barry was on oh, about wow. six or seven years ago. So he, I think he was working with Glasgow Rugby, and then he can, he's prospered. He's been um, doing the analysis work with British Studio for a number of years now, and uh, I think he's had some good days with them as well. You know, like he's, he's part of the support staff, gets to travel with them, gets to work with athletes. It's the life, mate. You know, it, 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 it's it's close. I think as being to an athlete, you can get to enjoy. Um, so yeah, I've done that. I've been on the, the, the internship for a couple of years now. And uh, yeah, it's just um, it's been, it's been good. I mean, most of my work, um, I cover training sessions, I cover rugby matches at all different levels. Um, I don't have a background in rugby at all. Um, I played maybe a couple of matches at university when I first joined, and that was I was rubbish. You know, I wasn't very good. Um, but yeah, it, it just kind of spawned from there. So yeah, I've been doing that. I mean, the internship's ongoing. I'm working at the moment. I'm working with Edinburgh Rugby, which is quite sweet. Um, it's, a, it's, it's just it's watching elite players 
compared to watching under-20s players or club-level players. It's just astonishing. I mean, it's, it's, what I see is what people see when they watch like elite-level judo players versus like junior athletes or whatever else. You know, it's, it's just astonishing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to continue with that. Like rugby's, it's an education. There's so, there's so much to understand. Um, I think of all the teams that I've worked with so far, I've enjoyed working with the development squads, like the girls under 20 teams more, because when the coaches are out there and they're breaking down the training drills and they're explaining the importance of it, you start to learn just by being in attendance. And then I'm like, okay, so it kind of gives me a better eye yeah. into you know, the sport of rugby in itself. So if anybody was doing that with judo, I'd encourage them to get involved with training because you'll start to learn the, the meaning, what coaches might actually want from you as well, you know. So, um, yeah, that's the kind of journey so far. But uh, I was just desperate, essentially, to get away from doing the doors. I had an incident in the doors that shook me up a little bit and it was just, it's time to, to sack this and get a real job and, you know, get my weekend back a little bit. <laughs> Uh, I I completely understand that, and with a, I know this has happened before the baby's come along, but now the baby's there. I'm sure you'll start to appreciate that more so yeah, as yeah, she gets a yeah. she gets a bit bigger. Um, Jamie, that's you know that's been absolutely superb. I've massively I've loved having you on. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for giving us the time. Um, if people want to follow you on social media, do you, do you post? Regularly, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Stuff. Yeah, share where, where are yeah. they gonna find you? So it's Beam Beam One, but if you just search me up, Jamie Williams, you'll find me on Twitter. Um, yeah, I have a little bit of content, I, I retweet a lot of stuff and pass it off as my own, is, is what <laughs> I'm very good at, you know. But uh, yeah, I'm gonna, I think this year I might start, I might start a blog or something and just start kind of touting out some of my own work and my own ideas. Um, you know, 10 like I'm, I'm still early in my career as an analyst you know I'm still trying to build on other careers you know like I'm, I'm great with the camera I'm great at cutting, tagging and creating timelines and giving feedback but the actual analysis of numbers and stuff is where I want to develop you know my Excel skills and my data science skills and whatnot and even data visualization you know creating all the kind of nice stuff that people want to see and um, that, that's where I'm probably going to be working on next so yeah this year I'll probably branch out a little bit more on that side of things but yeah if anybody wants to chat anybody wants to hit me up with potential ideas and stuff like that i'm always open to conversation absolutely love it thank you so much for coming Thanks for having on, on, good talking to you hey great to catch yeah. up and uh, i hope yeah. everyone listening has enjoyed that as well um I mean, we'll get back on it. This is this is number two of season two. Like, like, subscribe, share, retweet. We might have more to talk about because, uh, yeah, given like my recent medal, I think I'm gonna have a wee one and see if I can beat Cornwell. Let's <laughs> see. We we'll see. I'm Do you getting... know what, Jamie? I would love that. Let's talk about that, Jamie, further <laughs> down the line. Um, we'll see. Jamie Williams, absolutely superb. Thank you so much, mate. Take care. No worries. Big easy. <laughs>